in the beginning. That's how it starts, right? There's always truth, facts, and fiction. What one may be, the other could be, and that other one may not be. You may never guess, but if you don't, you'll ask. Unsolved, archived, and in the shadows. These dark stories need to be brought into the light. I'm Nick Knight, and these are the Knight Stories. Ladies and gentlemen, it was 9 a.m. on November 30th, 1948 when he arrived. A recent war left both continents in delirium and a much colder one was forming in the east and west. Our unknown man boarded a train to Adelaide. There was nothing special about this trip that particular day. That's all. And yet, A small series of facts would mark the end of his life at the end of the day. We are dealing with circumstances which are not ordinary. It may be that the natural explanation is not the true explanation. What you are hearing are the footsteps of the unknown man walking through Adelaide train station. We are in Australia. It is 1948. The unknown man moves through space and time to another counter, purchasing a ticket. A bus ticket. One way to Henley Beach, if you don't mind. Yes, sir. I'd like to check this. Yes, sir. Your ticket, sir. Your ticket. Oh, yes, thank you. Where are you going, unknown man? Is it this way or that? Don't you know you have to die by the end of this prologue? Sit in wine upon a rose-leaf scroll. All wisdom I found hidden in the bowls. All answers to all questions saving me. Which is the body and which is the soul? January 12, 1948. 
The body of the deceased was found on the shore at Somerton at about 7 a.m. on the 1st of December, 1948. Dr. Bennett, who examined it at 9.40 a.m., was of the opinion that death occurred around about 2 a.m. The body was clad in clothes of fairly good quality. All tags which might have led to the discovery of identity had been removed. The deceased was lying on his back, with his feet toward the sea, his head and shoulders supported by the sea wall. The head was inclined to its right, and between the right cheek and the right lapel of the coat was a partly smoked cigarette, but the coat was not scorched, nor the cheek blistered. The only articles in the clothing were some cigarettes and matches, two hair combs, a pack of chewing gum, a single uncancelled railway ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, a bus ticket which was proved to have been issued at about 11.15 a.m. on the 30th of November on the Adelaide Summerton bus, and which would have carried the holder from Adelaide to Summerton. And lastly, a piece of paper on which were printed the words Tamam Shud. This paper, which was in the fob pocket of the trousers and which was not found for some time afterwards, was, I am satisfied, torn from the copy of the second edition of Fitzgerald's translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The printed words are the concluding words of the poem and mean the end. At 7 p.m. on the 30th of November, a man was seen lying precisely where the body was found and in a similar position. He was seen to raise his right arm to its full extent. The arm fell limply. At about 7.30 p.m., a man and a girl saw the man in the same place. They did not see him move, but one of them gathered the impression that his position changed somewhat, and that in a way that they could not define, he was lying unnaturally. air and reach the spot where I made one turn down an empty glass. The end. Bartender, can you top him off? Visions await with one more sip, dear knight. Top off into thy chalice, barkeep. Are you ever concerned? With what, dear apprentice? This? No. What takes monks 40 years to achieve and yogis just as long? It takes me only four hours to reach beatitude. Well, maybe just watch for open manholes on the way back, okay? Speaking of, on the way to somewhere, things are all circular, Tanum Shud. The end? Just the beginning. Do you see her? Her there with the green eyes, I say unto you, lovely, halfway through the afternoon, that, as I bid you my habitual goodbye, a vague dismay at leaving made me know that I loved you. So with that, I took the madman in his rabid state and turned him into the street. In polite dog owner fashion, I let the leash loose just a little bit, but he was still leading me. Where? 
I didn't know. This Tamam should. This randomness of a 12.30 bender which I had to scoop him out of. The end. The beginning. But really, did I have anywhere to go today? I am the way into the city of woe. I am the way into eternal pain. I am the way to go among the lost. Justice caused my high architect to move. Divine omnipotence created me. The highest wisdom and the primal love. Before me there were no created things. But those that last forever as do I. Abandoned all hope. Ye who enter here. This way. It is rare that most people would find themselves in this situation. It's even rarer for the ones that would follow. But with the sun blinding to the west and home a long walk away, eh, why not? Besides, in a mad world, only the mad are actually sane. And to be a detective means never to avert one's eyes. The Tamam should. The end, and perhaps the beginning of something beyond now. So be it. Down I went. I did say abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Yeah, that seems about right. Mystery of Tamam Should, Second Canto, written by Nicole Lignani and Kevin Seaman. What was I hearing? Now in front of me were three pairs of glowing eyes that I could barely make out. My eyes were actually veiled in tears that it was watering from the foul stench wasteland below the city. Madman? They were signal fires from some other power. Announcing my presence to something greater than myself. I was on my way, but I had to back away from the glowing eyes first. Madman. Madman? The heavy smell, the sweet slime of the walls at my fingertips, uh, the scuttling of critters at my feet. They made me question if I was alive, and also, if I still wanted to be. Save your breath, knight. Anything you say to me is just noise in the wrong place. Madman, you brought me here. Lead the way. I'm not your dog, dear knight. Just follow the yellow brick road. Do not fear. Let your grief guide you. Only then will you see the beast retreat. I'm not afraid, nor should you be. One should only be fearful of harm to fellow men. These are not men. As my vision adjusted and pulse steadied, I moved forward. Taking the madman's arm as a walking stick, the fear had started to dematerialize just a bit, and in its place was a sad colony of time and sorrow. Whispers of my name and the awareness of me 
Some say a bad memory is an ill wind, but this one seemed more like a, a tornado. Here must all misgivings be cast off and cowardice be overcome, dear apprentice. History man! their fingers and their jaws at me. I turned away and walked, actually half ran past the folded and abject bodies. Dr. Grabos later told me these, these underground dwellers are known as the Mole People. I must have called out 99 names and were I to remember them all at once, I would unlock the secret of him I should. The end, on a sunny beach in Australia. The other end, which had brought me here. Would I find my own end on this shit-laden shores of my gritty city sewers? December 2, 1948. Remarks of the city coroner. The report I have received indicates, one, that the identity of the deceased is quite unknown, two, that his death was not natural, three, that it was probably caused by poison, four, that it was almost certainly not accidental. The natural and simple explanation of the circumstances which will be detailed in the evidence may be that the deceased died by his own act. But as we are dealing with circumstances which are not ordinary, it may be that natural explanation is not the true explanation. It would seem that the deceased has not been missed by anyone who knew him. Perhaps he has not been missed because there appear to be sufficient reason for his disappearance from his unusual surroundings, such as the expressed intention of going elsewhere to live. John Burton Cleland, M.D., Coroner. All right, where the hell are you, goddamn poet? Present. Good, you found us some dogs. We're gonna need them. The rats are biting down here. Who is this unknown man? He must find another way. His kind doesn't belong here. My kind? He's all right, boss. Dr. Grabo sent for him. He's looking for Tamam Shud. Well, I'm not running a charity. The good doctor knows that. Three cigarettes, two hair combs, one pack of gum, no ticket to ride. And it's extra for the dogs. Good enough. Into the blind world, let us now descend. I will go first, and you will follow me. And just like that, I got hosed. I paid the old man to walk his dogs. So who are these people? We here, we live forever in desire. With the madman holding me to his right, we turned a corner and found ourselves at the tail end of a long line, disfigured enchantments awaiting some kind of answer. Unlike the grime behind us, this whole area was sterile, fluorescent white and flickering. No need to wait in this. Come. 
He grabbed me, and we continued in the chaos of noise. The various sights I saw were one of fear and a ton of paperwork. Papers and sins and desires and wants. Watch my fingers as I cross. Two, three, four, five. Are you kidding? Minos is just a bookkeeper, a pencil pusher, a, a chief clerk. He condemns these people on the crossing of his fingers. Just a bookkeeper? Pencil pusher. Clerk, you say? Perhaps. But without my pass, you stay. Oh, you who come to the abode of woe. Men, women, and children have waited years for this moment. They stand anxiously with hope. Yet I have none to give. It is their own actions, with good intention or not, that their way is paved. So one, two, three, scribbler, give me your best guess. To which infernal pit shall you be plunged, and in which direction will you go? Take heed how you go in, and whom you trust. Let not the gate deceive you by its width. December 2, 1948. He is 180 centimeters tall, with hazel eyes, fair to ginger-colored hair, slightly gray around the temples with broad shoulders and a narrow waist, hands and nails that show no signs of manual labor, big and little toes that met in a wedge shape, like those of a dancer or someone who wore boots with pointed toes, and pronounced high calf muscles, like those of a ballet dancer. These can be dominant genetic traits, dystonia of the toes, and they are also a characteristic of many middle and long distance runners. He was dressed in a white shirt, red and blue tie, brown trousers, socks and shoes, and a brown knitted pullover, and a fashionable gray and brown double-breasted jacket. All labels on his clothes had been removed, and he had no hat or wallet. The body was clean-shaven and carried no identification. His teeth do not match the dental records of any known living person. If the body had been carried to its final resting place, then all the difficulties would disappear. I am quite convinced the death could not have been natural. The poison, I suggested, was a barbiturate, or a soluble hypnotic. John Burton Cleland, M.D., Coroner. of Temem Should, Canto 3, for Jack and Delia. From the personal archives of M.R. Grebos, Ph.D. June 7, 1949, Yadilaid Advertiser. Son found dead in sack beside father. 
Two-year-old Clive Magnuson was found dead in a sack beside his father, Keith Waldeman Magnuson, in a clump of bushes in Sand Hills near Fort Larks yesterday. Magnuson, who was very weak and suffering severely from exposure, was admitted at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. The discovery ended a four-day search by police and hundreds of local people. A post-mortem examination revealed that the child, who is believed to have been dead about 24 hours, had not died from natural causes. The contents of the boy's stomach have been sent to the government analyst for further examination. Magnuson and the dead child were found by Neil William McRae Trimmer of Margaret Terrace. Larks Bay North, who dreamt on Sunday night that the missing father and son were sheltering in thick box thorn in sand hills outside the western fence of Port Larks. McRae said yesterday that he had the dream during the two-hour rest period on Sunday night at the Osborne powerhouse where he is employed. He had not thought any more of it until he saw a police car traveling towards the fort yesterday morning. He then decided to walk along the beach in the direction of the fort and search the bushes. I saw Magnuson lying down looking towards me, said MacRae. I said, hello Keith, but he did not answer. I asked a householder to notify the police who found the child in a bag beside his father. Police found an empty bottle on the ground near where Magnuson had been lying and several empty sacks were found in the bushes. Detective Elbond and PCCRN Morrison of Port Adelaide. Number 7, number 15, number 26, number 28, number 30, number 31, number 33, number 37, number 40, number 41, number 42, number 43, number 45. The express arrives in five minutes. Destination, Abaddon Circle. As Minos continued sorting through the damned queue, I took a look around. It was his story against mine, but of course, I told my story better. Slide to the side, dear knight. Minus won't pay no mind. Crouch down and sneak around. Fear not, no one blocks our passage. A greater power has granted it. The wait won't be long now, and I won't leave you behind. Promise. We'll take a seat a while and feed and comfort that tired will of yours with some conversation. There's no sacrifice too great for a chance at immortality. Who are those two lovebirds in the corner? Frankie and Polly. They only have eyes for each other, but they take the pulse of the world. Cross-legged, their heads bowed together as if in prayer... They shared that one tile on the platform like two dancers locked in a tango. 
Frankie and Polly leaned into each other as if they could prop up the world with their shared touch, even as the rest of the world fell away. It was then I realized they weren't praying, or maybe it was a prayer of a different sort, locking ears over a black foam headphone attached to a Walkman. The fools. Are you so wise, Knight, that you won't suffer any fools? I was wearing my heart on my sleeve again, speaking out loud. I'm just sorry to interrupt their concert in this lovely hall, is all. Are you now? Frankie turned green eyes, cat eyes, towards me. And I knew then the Timmerman's catch of breath when caught on a beam of light, brushing across the shoals on a foggy night. I was rudderless, and Frankie knew it, reeling me in. I let Frankie net me and awaited the next words to float to the surface. We don't need your pity, but if you would lend us your ears and hear me out. You don't belong here, like me. Oh, we do, sir, we do. We just take some comfort in knowing that the guy that done done us in is worse off than us. And so lonesome. While our solitude is ours alone to keep. Ain't that right, love? But we don't need your pity, sir. Just a moment of your time. The train has taken its own sweet time and we're here waiting on the platform, but we weren't quite a we yet. Not a unit. And Polly with the Walkman and the headphones turns and says to me, You want to listen while you wait? And I couldn't remember why I was waiting anymore. And I say, sure. And all the din and all the world in that moment, it just receded. Because Polly's hand touches mine and we press together, cheek to cheek. And my mind goes quiet because my heart is hammering so hard. And the song starts playing. You know it, sir? Sure. It felt like my heart would explode, and Polly says the same in retrospect. But then we hear, Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely night dreaming of a song the melody haunts my reverie and i am once again with you when our love was new and each kiss an inspiration but that was long ago now my consolation is in the stardust of a song. And now we can't help ourselves hearing of another's kiss as if our own. My heart bursting, Paula turns to me and we share that sweet kiss, waiting as we are for that train that never comes. Folks go quiet and watch us in contempt, but they come and go while we're still waiting. And we've got stardust to pass the time. I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. What's that you say? Uh, Nothing. Heard it in a movie once. Your embrace kind of brought it to mind.
Coroner, 2 a.m. December 1, 1948. The heart was of normal size and normal in every way. Small vessels not commonly observed in the brain were easily discernible with congestion. There was congestion of the pharynx, and the gullet was covered with whitening of superficial layers of the mucosa, with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. The stomach was deeply congested. There was congestion in the second half of the duodenum. There was blood mixed with the food in the stomach. Both kidneys were congested, and the liver contained a great excess of blood in its vessels. The spleen was strikingly large, about three times normal size. There was destruction of the center of the liver lobules revealed under the microscope. Acute gastritis hemorrhage, extensive congestion of the liver and spleen, and the congestion to the brain. John Burton Cleland, MD. Here lies the unknown man who was found at Summerton Beach, 1st of December, 1948. The case files state, a man showed police a 1941 edition of Edward Fitzgerald 1859 translation of the Rubaiyat, published by Whitcomb and Tombs in Christchurch, New Zealand. Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean, who led the initial investigation, often protected the privacy of witnesses in public statements by using pseudonyms. Lean referred to the man who found the book by the pseudonym Ronald Francis. He has never been officially identified. On the inside back cover of the book, detectives identified indentations from handwriting. These included a telephone number, an unidentified number, and text that resembled an encrypted message. The book was found in the rear footwell of a car at about the same time that the body of the unidentified man had been found. In the back of the book were faint indentations representing five lines of text in capital letters. The second line had been struck out, a fact that is considered significant. The symbols read, W-R-G-O-A-B-A-B-E-M-L-I-A-O-I-W-T-B-I-M-P-A-N-E-T-P-M-L-I-A-B-O-A-I-A-Q-C
So, this is it? Are we here? Where else would we be? I mean, this is the way, right? Only you have the key. I can't see the door in the darkness. Anyone have a light? You know, you'd think by now that someone would have invested in a flashlight. Just be still, sugar. We'll get it now, or soon enough. Let there be light. (laughs) Hurry now, before I burn my fingers. Frankie illuminated what stood between me and the answer to my questions. A massive vaulted door. It kind of reminded me of the 22-ton vault door at Fort Knox and the 10-person team that's required to unlock that door. Hey, Frankie, look at the writing on the wall by the vault. The rich man dreams of riches and fears. Those fears that his riches breed. The poor man dreams of his need and all his sorrows and tears. Dreams he who prospers over years. Dreams he who feigns and foregoes. Dreams he who rails on his foes. And in all the world I see, man dreams whatever he be, though his dream no man knows. You say the answer is behind this door? And behind those ten lines of verse. Great. More enigmas. That's what the madman said. It's not what I said. It is written. Ten lines of poetry to that stanza. Ten ciphers for ten beings. For God said, God said ten times in Genesis 1. And consider, ten generations of man lived before the floodwaters. And consider, the Lord gave ten commandments to Moses. And consider, for each letter a man reads to the Holy Koran, he will reap at least ten rewards. And consider that... You know, you're kind of starting to remind me of McKinley, a walking Wikipedia. I seem to like you a little better when you were just a drunk. The numbers of the law will unlock the vault. And while Frankie and the madman riffed on the meanings of the decade... I looked at the motley crew assembled before me, including Polly, who didn't say much, Madman, Frankie, the dogs, and the others. We were ten. Ten and all. Do the dogs count? Yes. No. Well, there they go, arguing again, just like they'd done the entire trip. It was an argument about how we'd picked up the last three characters of our benighted bunch to make up ten. So the banker, the bookie, and the barber. But it all began, as most things do, with the search for a light at the subway platform, where I had found Frankie and Polly amid the stardust. And the one question on everyone's mind, when the hell will we ever find the answers to this mystery? Anyone got a match? I may have one. Tell me, with all you've seen here, are you feeling that limbo? I mean, it's kind of nice to know not knowing. 
You know my drift, sugar? Over smokes and a flask, I had gone quickly from sir to sugar, but Polly didn't seem to mind. Frankie, I catch your drift, I guess. But for you, it seems something is calling you to the next stop. With that, I looked at the gold letters embossed on the matchbox. What's a Grabos? While back, Polly found those on the way down the ramp. We've been playing a little too long, it seems. Come, Polly, rise up, baby. Time to move long on in. Polly, baby, we're done folding these broken wings. Let's learn how to fly, love. Now, Frankie and Polly rose up like a backward scarecrow. And in all this hubbub, I glanced over at the madman who looked like a kind of like a sleepwalker waking up on the verge of a precipice. Our, our little group of four, we existed apart as in the eye of a hurricane. We drank from the same flask, sharing our solitude once again in something less than love, but sweeter than self. At least the matches worked. I flipped over the matchbook in my hands. Graybooks, all life is a dream to all. Hey, are you guys sure this is the right train? As sure as we'll ever be, Sugar. So we shuffled onto the train. Me, Frankie, Polly, the madman, and three dogs. The folks on the train gave a gimlet eye to my Cherberus for hire. But otherwise, they let us be. The car was packed. Not a seat to be found. All except for this one spot near a bespectacled bearded gentleman. He was poring over an oversized book course, being ever a sucker for a fellow bibliophile, I asked him, I take a seat? Not at all. He flashed me a hollow smile, flashing gold teeth. Then he went back to his intense reading as the train lurched forward, oblivious to the swaying body surrounding him, or so I thought, because without turning away from his rows of numbers which I could observe over his shoulder, he observed, I would write them off if I were you. What's that? the dogs. Not a good investment in my professional opinion. The old man got you good. I don't need your professional opinion to realize that you're out hosed. Plus, why would I trust a bookkeeper whose numbers don't really add up? What about him? He's a banker. I'm doing his numbers right now. Those columns don't make sense. Use your imagination and anything's possible. One plus one equals three. The magic happens in this book. Now at this point, the bookkeeper took another book out of his blazer's inner pocket. It was a palm-sized, worn, dog-eared, and water stains. It was kind of like a writer's notebook. Want to see? He licked the tip of his middle finger, brought it down to the middle, opening the notebook with a painful crease down the spine. Here it is. It's all Greek to me. What is it, some kind of spice code? It's in code, of course. Dead Man's Litany. Legible only to those with the UR text, you know, the master book. For that, you'll need Rebos. Hey, Frankie, pass me that matchbook of yours again. Sugar, this is no good, whispering with a bookie like that. He's a bookkeeper. And a bookie. You the gambling type knight? I try not to be. Money makes me sweat. Oh, Sugar, he done smelled you out. You hold on to this, you hear? So Frankie passed the book of matches into my palm. It was like a rosary. As the train car swerved, the wheels of the track screeched in the dark, 
The lights flicker on again, and I saw it in gold letters. Grabos. There was the name again. So, against my better instincts, I turned to the bookkeeper, who was also a bookie, and said to him, What about Grabos? Second time I hear that name tonight. After the race, I'll even show you the way to Grabos. But I've got to get the banker's books in order first. And also, I'm taking bets. Because one way or another, we all work for our vices. You don't say. So, what are the odds? The odds against there being a bomb on a train are a million to one. And against two bombs, a million times a million to one. Next time you ride, cut the odds and take a bomb. You think yourself a funny man in addition to being a bookie and a bookkeeper, huh? Here. At that point, he ripped out two pages from his notebook, folded them carefully, got up, pushing one folded paper into the hand of a clenched fist held by the banker on his knee, and he sat back down next to me and held out the other one. That is what you want, so take it. The odds you are looking for. Now, against my better judgment, with Frankie pleading with me not to open the damn paper, I took it and unfolded it and read Midnight Sun, Boisterous Bucephalus, Roaring Rosnante, Looking at Lucky, Genuine Risk, Plenty of Pegasus, Native Dancer, Rogue Ringmaster, Uncle Sal, Dorothy Gale. By the names were scribbled the odds, and against my better judgment, my heart pounding, my palms sweating, hands shaking, the blood of course flowing loose in my veins like weak cognac, I spit out 500, a trifecta, rogue for first, roaring for second, Dorothy for third. I don't have scratch, but I'm good for it. Maybe a daily double for the second round, if things don't go smooth the first time around. Very good. Knight, sign right there. Just keep in mind, you place your bets with me, but for a loan, you'll need to speak to my partner, the banker. Next stop, the Belmont Bulges. And with this is how I entered my own personal inferno, a gambler's paradise, money from home. And now the mystery of Tamam Shud, Canto 6. In memoriam, Maria Rosa Menacal, April 9th, 1953, October 15th, 2012. Yet were it vain some other way to try, but 
of all our lying minds is least a lie. All earthly roads wind nowhere in the end. What matters then? The roads we travel by. Oh, weary man, upon a weary earth, what is this toil that we call living worth? This dreary agitation of the dust, and all this strange mistake of mortal birth. Write it in mine upon a rose leaf scroll, for wisdom I found hidden in the bird. Money from home. Yeah, it came and went. If I ever wake from this never-ending nightmare, a quick look in the mirror, I'll need a new face. My luck is out now. From now on, let's leave out the pity. Stumbled out of the track, dragged out by my own shame. The sober light of a soupy street, dodging the bookie, the bookkeeper, and the banker. A cube menagerie of trouble. The madman gone, Frankie and Polly, they lost somewhere in the crowd. And out of nowhere, what looked like a torn and frocked priest, someone approached me. Excuse me, sir. Do you have a cigarette and a match? The one I fear is useless without the other. Yeah, here you go. Well, friend, you don't look so prosperous. I looked into whatever scraps of change, along with the match, that offered the stranger. Oh, no, no. You can keep your money. Here, take this. It seems I have more in my pocket. Thank you. They are just a couple of midnight nickels, but you never know. I'm sorry? Oh, I'm not offended. I've begged often enough, but tonight... I'm glad. You've had some luck. People talk about the devil's luck, don't they? You wouldn't think it, but I was a priest once. I don't suppose you've seen a failure like that before. I've seen worse failures. I think I'd as soon die as go on living as I do. Tonight, you see. Tonight, I lost my self-respect. <laughs> Is that all? I've often wondered how long a starving man could go before he lost his self-respect. Not long. But if only I could suffer a little, I wouldn't feel so... so deserted. Or if it were only yesterday. Don't you ever want to go back, just like that? Never take money from a dead man, Nick Knight. The look in his eyes when he said my name, and his sincere search for suffering, spooked me a bit as I followed the ash and the fog down the lane. If it was only yesterday, one more time back that way. Come with me. A man like you needs to be forgotten. I agreed. Under the thinning fog, the surf curled and cascaded almost without a sound like a thought trying to form itself on the edge of consciousness. In the distance, I saw a glowing light, so I started making my way that direction. Almost like a beacon, it stood as the only sense of dimension in this foggy world. I could make out the world Beatrix. Flickering on and off, the pressure of the air tracked me in. Not far off behind, the stranger copied each of my footsteps. This forgotten man needs some grace. Bartender. For him two, for me one. We don't know how long these pockets will hold. Well, here's to your angel wings, stranger. And here's to fancy exits.
I knew they would make it out. It was about time. Frankie and Polly, uh, surely they had received their just desserts. The poet was cruel to make them wait so long. The poet was just. Perhaps. Perhaps as you get older, you will no longer confuse mercy with injustice. Where were we? The uh, second sermon on the Song of Songs by Bernard de Clairvaux. Oh, yes. The meaning of the kiss. Go on. You brought down the Latin, didn't you, Julius? Uh, But it's the original. Yes. But that won't suffer you mangling the medieval Latin with your classical pronunciation. But, 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 uh, but... To read Bernard, you must be vulgar. Filthy, even. The English translation by Evans will do just fine. One word from you on the purity of returning to the source. Ad fontes and I'll send you back to Renaissance studies where I found you. Now, where were we? The meaning of the kiss. One moment, dear Julius. Did you ever hear the tale of the Shanghai sailor? Whiskey like old country whiskey, I manfully agree. So at this point, I closely examine the ceiling of the cork. <laughs> New untouched bottle. No dope in this. I can still remember a strange but pleasant sort of drowsy feeling beginning to steal over me whilst taking that swig. And there's still silhouetted upon my mind that scoundrel's evil face intently watching me. It never occurred to me why. My defrocked patron seemed to have disappeared. One quick check of the finances, and I realized that this little, forgetful, forgotten man is in a bit of a quandary. So do I tap on the bar for another, or just make my way out? It's always difficile, isn't it? How you say, needing another. Excuse me? You know, autre mas, un autre, encore un autre, s'il vous plaît. The tap-tap. Well, I wouldn't say no, miss. Veronique. Well, thank you kindly. You can call me Johnny. Johnny, you say? Hmm. So, El Johnny, what's how they say, qu'est-ce qu'est tu French is a little touchy lately. What has you down? An unknown man, a forgotten one, and a few vices that seem to have caught up with me. Oh, we. Oui. Another round. Make it unlisted numbers. Dos. Don't mind the silly nature of the name. It's just a cocktail. One, I think you'll find no... How do you say? Escrupulos? The qualms? It's okay with me. Now, Veronica seemed to be the type of girl who never said sorry. Not that I actually minded that. Another vice to add to the heap of consequence and an insatiable appetite for dames who don't apologize. So, Johnny, not Jack. Up to you. We leave it up to the fates. 
Do you have a coin? Too many coins. Not enough paper. Oui. Tails or heads? I assume you want to flip. Toss it. Tails. Oh, you lose, Shelly. Oh, shall I call you Jack? Well, with my luck, you can say whatever you want. Loss is a middle name, and I am kind of done trying to collect pieces now. This is a strange coin, Monsieur Jacques. How so? The writing. It looks like scribbles. Garabatos. It's a coin. What's the answer? I'm afraid it doesn't serve my purposes, Monsieur Jacques. Again? With this? How many more keyholes do I need? Retribution and closure? So, como se dice, dramatico, so dramatic, Mr. Jacques. Silly man, I need a coin for the jukebox. This is foreign, I'm afraid. Like me, doesn't take. So I handed her a nickel. She swayed her way over to the jukebox. I didn't care what she played. I just wanted those hips, those eyes back on my horizon. She can knock me out, leave me out to cure. It wouldn't matter. Among ladies like this, whatever fate you shake, you swallow and take. That's pretty much it. Now, that's better, Shelly. Shall we make a toast? That's when she put on blues my naughty sweetie gave to me. That was it. Take it in. Drop it in. Let's see what tomorrow will bring. Cheers. Doll, that's just the sound of glasses blinking and my head spinning a bit. Exactement. I leaned in for something. Skin? That flushed face need to smoosh against another? Yet at that moment, the room got kind of spinny for me. The lights got weird, and the mouth got too inviting. But not in a good way. As if the world wanted to swallow my cheeks. There is a bit of a moment of blackout of when you've been had. That it all becomes an echo. Nothing intelligible, but the next guy tomorrow says, guess what you did yesterday? And that's how it all fell on the domino board. Oh, for God's sake, Julius. It is quite obvious that he's undead. Why do you insist on covering his face? I can't stand to look at it. Nor is the man a god. Who is he, Professor? He is my little warbler, and I shall make him sing. Like a great big brute. What does he look like, Julius? No, you're terribly wrong. He is my little songbird. This man has something of mine. And Frankie, said Mr. Knight, was a fine specimen of a man. Mighty fine and sweet to look at. That's what Frankie said. Sugar? That's what Frankie calls him. I don't see what all the fuss is about. Perhaps you were right to cover the sugar and keep all the nasty flies away. That's you, Julius. You are the fly. So slow and yet so highly recommended. Stop fussing over the man. Let him dream a little longer. Where were we, Julius? Your piece on the Enigma. Ah, yes. Go on. All collaboration is mysterious. That of the Englishman and the Persian was even more so, for the two were quite different, and, perhaps in life, might not have been friends 
Death and vicissitudes and time led one to know the other and make them into a single poet. Go on. That's it. That's where it ends. Don't be so dull, dear. But how? There's no need to stick to the script. Make something up. Throw an American into the mix, for starters. Dr. Grebus, I believe your guest is waking up. Indeed, Julius. Your powers of observation are mighty. Go on, leave us. I'll call you when I need you. Don't forget the Larousse, the 1961 edition. It has the recipe. And do close the door behind you. Your friends spoke highly of you. I can't imagine why. Must be my charming personality, or or perhaps my talent for failure. Only fools claim contingencies as their own making. Hey, you have a match? I gave my last to a priest who robbed a dead man. Mi casa es su casa, as they say. Yeah, when was the last time you dusted around here? A straight talker, that airs a bit. Not many men would insult a woman's cleaning. You're vulgar. But with a soft spot for poetry. Perfect for the mystics, really. And a master of deflection. I know your name, but you still don't know mine. Just then, she opened the left drawer of her desk and shuffled around inside of it. Matches are here. The ashtray is at the side table on your left side. Do use it, Mr. Knight. I enjoy the company of lowlifes, but I prefer to do my work in an office. Not a dive. I am as hollow and empty as the space between the stars, lady. Come on, give a fellow a break, will you? Un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq. Your matches, Mr. Knight. There's also a lamp with two tulip glasses on a tray behind it. And a decanter. Go on, turn on the light. Though the glare might hurt a bit in your state. Good man. Now do service the Armagnac. It's lovely, but it needs a half hour for the aroma to fully develop. We just come out with it already. I'm tired of the labyrinths and the riddles. Why am I here? At that point, I turned the matchbox in my hand. More god-awful Grabos. Dr. Grabos, to you, my dear knight. I can't say that I'm pleased to meet you, but you came highly recommended. So here we are. You wish to learn more about Tamim Shud, the end, as it were. If I were your therapist, which I'm not, I would say that your death wish is overpowering. I sent my soul through the invisible, some letters of that afterlife to spell, and by and by my soul did return and answered, I myself am heaven and hell. I make do without that god-awful cane in close quarters, my dear knight. Or should I call you sugar? I think you quite enjoyed that. Frankie is quite a character. You know, if I was a cookie, I'd be made of arsenic. And get to it. For a man who enjoys deciphering a mystery or two, you do like things fed to you by the teaspoon. Listen, my meter's running out and they'll find me soon enough. I clogged it with midnight nickels. Look at me, Mr. Knight. What do you see? 
you who needs the light and cannot see in the dark. So she sat across from me, primly, her hands on her knees, her head turned to the light cast by the lamp. Her eyes may have been green once, but they were now clouded over a bit. You're blind. My, my, that is quite the discovery, Nick. There's some hope for you after all, Gumshoe. Now you may begin again by asking the right questions. Fair point. Well, what's the geography? Precision, my dear. The geography or the cartography? Listen, mincing words never did a scribble or any favor. Only added to his savings account. Where the hell am I, Gravos? I then reached for one of the glasses of Armanac. Patience, my dear. What you seek takes time, and we will share a drink in due course. In the meantime, I ask you, do you really only wish to know where you are, not where you were or where you will be? We are in my office, but you seek answers in Australia, in Persia, and also in the wanderings of a long-dead poet by the river Arno, or the musings of a translator's son in the Antipodes, all long dead. She was a lady who talked with commas and semicolons, like a heavy novel. Beyond the band of artifacts and riddles, can you give me something more concrete, some brick and mortar to all this? Echoes of code, cryptology, they do me no good when I'm stranded. You know, you can have a hangover from other things besides hooch. Like a woman, for instance, or even someone whose brevity seems to be on vacation. Hardly stranded. You are hardly a Robinson Crusoe. And in any case, Friday is right next door to supply us with anything we may need. Julius likes imagination, but he is dutiful. And if I am prolix in my responses, it may be because you are not asking the right questions. I am no man-eater, if it is cannibalism that you fear. What do you hunger for, Knight? Is it something that Julius can fetch, or is it something more? While you think, because you are a bit slow on the uptake, sugar, do be a dear and put the record on. It's all set up on the turntable. You know, Grabos, most people go through life using up half their energy trying to protect a dignity that they never had. I know this tune. For parlor games and constant diddling, I started to scout a door, a window, or some such escape route if I could. Nothing. Stacks of books and ladders leading to more books and more ladders. She wove about there a, a certain grace of a blind woman fumbling for a cushion. Kind of like watching a dog trying to eat a fly. Is there another clue, Doc? I take it you don't understand the original Spanish. You take a lot of patience, but have very little to spare. It's about a man who gambles on a horse who slows down right at the finish. And so, the man loses everything he has. By a head. You mean by a nose? The singer also loses his head over a woman, gambling his heart and coins. 
I know something about losing your head over hens and scratch. Search your pockets. You may find another head to set your sights on. Starting to dig through my pants pockets, my coat pocket. You know, a couple of midnight nickels, a tear for Temem should, half-spent matches, and two cigarettes left in a pack. I'm all about spent brokenness. Perhaps if you looked a little closer at one of the coins, you would see that it is not a nickel, but worth 20 cents and so much more. A razor or pen knife has scratched the letters N, T, and the number 2. The date stamped on the face is 1948. I looked closely at the coin. Grabos was right. The coin had been minted the same year as the Tememshud murder, and yet it felt eternal, like it had always existed. And then I couldn't stand to look at it any longer. This is spycraft, spook, lamplighter nonsense, goon squad mumbo-jumbo of the Cold War. You know, the poets of espionage took an almost uh, a glee in outsmarting their opponents. What did it even matter? Dead bodies and broken empires? This Tamim should mystery? Well, to me, it's a clear case of murder in a setup gone horribly wrong, but with enough intrigue to shine light on the bizarreness of the case. Fair is false and False is fair. You are a lucky man, Knight. How so? It would seem that you have all the answers and have no need for the insights of a blind woman like myself. And yet here you are. Here we are. And yet here I am. You have been lucky enough to have seen and not seen the face of this coin, which is the shadow of the rose and the rending of the veil. The mystics would envy you. You, a drunk, only full of self-pity and remorse. Really? You're too kind? I cannot fathom why you would be chosen, but it was not my choice to make. In the long dock, you have both bonastre and désastre. A fortunate disaster touched both by the stars and the space in between. Hey, that's my line. And you stole it from the poets you have yet to read. The Kabbalists believe that man is the microcosm, the mirror of the universe. What do you see when you see yourself in the mirror, Knight? I would posit that you see something like the face of that coin. Well, it does fill me with dread. Give it to me, Knight. I have been searching for it all my life, and you have no need for it. Why? If it's so precious... What do I get in exchange? A divine morsel. You may have a drink now. Well, should we make a toast? To the song caught in your throat, Spook. Hear, hear. Chin, chin. Doctor, that's just the sound of glasses clinking. Rustic, yet refined. This stuff's good. I could drown myself in this stuff. <laughs> well put, my dear knight errant. Now follow me. In fact, I led her, or well, she led me from behind, resting one dainty hand on the crook of my arm. She counted the steps through a maze of book stacks and artifacts and vases that teetered on the edges of shelves along with forgotten cups of tea, potted ferns, spider webs, chocolate slabs, and newspaper clippings. You people have the oddest way of counting. Just saying 99 would suffice. Praise for brevity from a practitioner of periphrasis. 
And yet four times 20 plus 19 is really the way to go when referencing the many names for the divine, no? It was just then I smelled it. The sizzling of flesh and fat, the crisping of skin, and I saw we'd reached our destination. It was a big banquet hall with a round table. The moon-faced, bow-tied, elbow-patch blazer-wearing sycophant, the one who I knew as Julius, rushed in with the guéridon of thirteen cast-iron coquettes, which he laid on the table and stood behind one of the two empty chairs. Take a seat, my little warbler. I believe you are all acquainted. It was then and there I looked around at my fellow diners, and there they were. The bookie, the barkeep, the banker, the stranger, and Veronica. Also, Frankie and Polly, caught in their internal embrace over the Walkman. The madman had returned, and the old man still wore a scowl. They all bowed their heads as if in prayer, and did not acknowledge my presence or one another's. At this point, my stomach was growling. I hadn't eaten in days. It was as if I was a shipwrecked sailor presented with a pig roasting on a spit. So I reached for a napkin, tucked it under my chin, making ready to eat. For the uninitiated among us, the napkin is to cover your face, not your shirt. Thank you, Julius. You have done well. I need the flame now and the Armagnac. Night and its partner darkness have always been friends of mine. So, I speak to you from the shadows as if seated right beside you, and perhaps I am. What is now taking place is both obscene and delightful. Epicurean drowning and decapitation of a songbird soaked in the specific spirit of Armagnac, a brandy of forty virtues from the southwest of France. As one French cardinal said, whose name I do not care to remember, the Armagnac makes disappear redness and burning of the eyes, and stops them from tearing. It cures hepatitis, relieves the sudden onset of sobriety, and soothes the racking cough of consumption. It cures gout, cankers, and fistula by ingestion, restores the paralyzed member by massage, it enlivens the spirit when partaken in moderation, recalls the past to memory, renders men joyous, preserves youth, and retards senility. And, when retained in the mouth, it loosens the tongue and emboldens the wit, if someone timid allows himself to partake of it from time to time. Now, this particular meal we are witnessing is cut from the same archaic qualities as mentioned by the aforementioned 14th century cardinal. The diner's head is covered with a fine linen napkin so that she is both unable to see the others around her and also shield the diner from God's judgment. Which is silly, 
you will agree. For God, by definition, is all-seeing. Hmm. Nevertheless, the birds are cooked for eight minutes and served with their heads still attached. After the shame-cloaking napkin is placed over the diner's head, helping, too, to trap the aroma of the dish, the ortolan is popped in its entirety into the diner's mouth, who then proceeds to eat everything, including the head and bones. So, dear listener, we are the proverbial eyes and ears in the walls as this ghastly event commences. December 2, 1948. Remarks of the city coroner. The report I have received indicates, one, that the identity of the deceased is quite unknown. Two, that his death was not natural. Three, that it was probably caused by poison. Four, that it was almost certainly not an accidental. The natural and simple explanation of the circumstances which would be detailed in the evidence may be that the deceased died by his own act, but as we are dealing with circumstances which are not ordinary, it may be that natural explanation is not the true explanation. It would seem that the deceased has not been missed by anyone who knew him. Perhaps he has not been missed because there appear to be sufficient reason for his disappearance from his unusual surroundings, such as the expressed intention of going elsewhere to live. John Burton Cleveland, and I peeked beneath my white shroud and saw us all bowed reverently over the small, sizzling songbirds, except for Greybooks. Hey, where's your napkin? As we have established, my dear knights, I am blind and have no need to play peekaboo with God. And as you must know by now, I am shameless. But first, the Zahir. Reminding myself of some sleight of hand, I quickly took my nail and scratched on one of the midnight nickels I had to modify the coin just a bit. She's blind, right? Well, unless her fingers are like a raccoon's, I should be all right, right? She took the false Sahir from my open palm, briefly placed the coin's head to her lips, and smiled an enigmatic smile. And now your payment. Be careful. It is very hot. It will burn both your mouth and fingers. Now hold the orthonome by the head and place the rest in your mouth like so. Again, following her lead for the second time, I found my mouth wrapped around a hot, tiny body pulsating with heat. It was excruciating. I blew quickly around the roasted bird while my mouth salivated and I dribbled saliva and fat into the casserole beneath my eating shroud. It felt like hell. Bite into her. I did. The bones crunchy and then the tender flesh smooth like sweet creamy butter that was laced with our magnet and then bitter. The diminutive entrails sedimented my tongue and my throat. I had tasted heaven. Delicious, no? What was it? Don't be vulgar, dear. Don't speak with your mouth full. What is it? It is Nephis, forbidden. My little songbird, she is a little songbird. Just like you, a drop of the amber liquid in my decanter did her in. Now, thief, 
Give me the truth I hear. How did you know? A little bird told me. You are not the only snitch in this world. Is your heart a cage? Uh, no, I, I give it a little bird seed now and then. That's a mighty fine figure of speech, but I'm not quite convinced. Neither am I. I expected nothing less, my dear knight errant. You did not disappoint. In the end, most coins signify more than they are intrinsically worth. The opposite is true with the Zahir. I then handed over the true Zahir, feeling slightly ashamed, though exhilarated by the forbidden meal I just enjoyed. It was worth it, this dead-end meal. I handed over the true Zahir. Mr. Knight, though I must confess, my happy ending was a matter of pure luck. Next time, don't try to pull the wool over a blind woman's eye. It's redundant. <laughs> I called your bluff, and you lost by a head again. I woke up with an envelope staring me in the face, so I went ahead and opened it. Inside the envelope were two Alka-Seltzer tablets. Well, I'll try if you will. I plopped them in a glass and started to unfold the letter. Dear Knight Errant, Remorse is a dish best served on a shit-covered toilet, preferably in jail, so I've been told. Lucky for you, my little warbler, you repented just in time. Though I do not doubt that it will hurt a bit, no pun intended, to give up the Zahir. I do love it so. Do you feel its absence, like the cold winter winds blowing through those crevices, the withering heights of your trembling body? So hard to go cold turkey after so much indulgence, no? Forgiveness now is that strange thing, is it not? It requires some measure of truth, some accounting for sins, making actual requests for it, for the righting of wrongs to be made. It is bookkeepers' nonsense, debits and credits, wrongs and rights, or the bookies settling of bets and debts with a punch in the nose. In any case, atonement is comprised by action and perhaps feeling some shame for wrongs done. Words are never enough, but they are a start. The details and the devil, you know more of the latter though. Lucky for you, you never did me any harm. But I saw you, blind as I am, staring at Frankie and Polly from beneath your napkin. 
Your envy of their joy in their shared misery is hard to mask, even from a blind woman like myself. And yet, time is the great healer, so I'm told. I wish you well, my dear knight. If only that you may know yourself, as the philosopher has enjoined us all to do. Touched by bonastre and désastre, you are both too much of a gambler and a sneak to appreciate the twists of the real in your favor. And something of a bully too, so Julius tells me. I wouldn't be surprised if you were to cheat on Lady Luck herself. You've done nobody any favors. That's why I like you, so blatant in your deceit. Unable to keep up with your lies, you twist yourself back in a corner of your own making and end up snoring in the drunken stupor on my office sofa. When you do finally wake up to count your winnings and your losses, do take note of the world. The signs, left for you traced on the fogged-up window of a cab, leaving you soaked in its wake. The scribbles of a cocktail napkin left for you at a bar. The scent of saffron crushed between the pages of an ill-begotten letter. You are not helpless, just terribly dull in your self-pity night. Really, it must be so debilitating, all this wallowing. My final suggestion to you Get over yourself and learn how to ask for forgiveness or else choose to dwell in that nothingness between the stars forevermore. With that, I folded up the letter and moved over to the typewriter. It was a din, a hum of mechanization. Now, time itself held its breath in keen suspense, time after time, as the street blended with whatever thoughts a forgotten man could get out. It become almost white, the sound of white, white noise. I didn't solve anything, I just fell into it. I began to type my way out of it, inching ever closer to some sense of grace. What I was shaping was a story, and not a pretty one at that. The best ones are never nice and neat. The rest, as the man said, is silent. This ends The Night Stories, The Mystery of Tam M. Shud, with Jim Hudson, Dominique Elliott, Marcus Ellsworth, Sam Shaw, Christy Burns, Gabe Eden, Paul Rosenblum, and J.D. Demers. Written by Nicole Lignani, and Kevin Seaman. Production and sound by Kevin Seaman for Auto Radio.